I work in poetry and nonfiction, and poetry is the way that I participate in my community of artists. I'm from a Poetry Slam background, and the Poetry Slam community is all about giving a soapbox to people who perhaps otherwise would not think that they have a role in poetry. So I began uh, working with that community when I was 19. I was at NYU, and I started the NYC Urbana Poetry Slam when I was still underage. And uh, we later moved to CBGB's and later moved to the Bowery Poetry Club, where we're still held every single week. Uh, and you can watch it live on the web at BoweryPoetryLive.com, Tuesday nights at 7. And it's just a way for me to engage with the local community. It's so rarely do you have a chance to have someone get up and tell their story from their own mouth, from any corner of the city, any age. We've had 12-year-olds, we've had 90-year-olds. And I really find that to be hugely heartening and compelling. And I get to witness things I've, I would n otherwise never see. That was poet and recipient of a 2011 NEA Poetry Fellowship, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz is something of a legend in New York City's slam poetry scene. She is lively, thoughtful, and approachable, looking to engage the audience with her work, and as we heard, deeply committed to the community that art in general and slam poetry in particular can create. She's performed both nationally and internationally at venues ranging from Joe's Pub at New York City's Public Theater to the Culver Academy in Indiana to the Sydney Opera House, where she served as the overseas mentor for Mouths Off, a youth poetry show. She's written five books of poetry and one book of nonfiction, Words in Your Face, a guided tour through 20 years of the New York City Poetry Slam. Aptowitz is currently serving as the Arts Edge Writer-in-Residence at the University of Pennsylvania. I spoke with Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz at the Association of Writers and Writing Programs Conference in Washington, D.C., and I asked her to tell me more about performance poetry. Performance poetry, as we like to say, it was oral poetry before it was print poetry. You know, all of the early poets, Homer, they all performed it uh, live. And to me, I think that there's an accessibility there and an invitation there for voices that traditionally wouldn't feel comfortable with print poetry. And, and to some extent, that is also their comfortability with the written word. One of the most moving things that I've heard about performance poetry was um, an interview I did for my book, Words in Your Face. I interviewed the woman who runs Urban Word. And Urban Word reaches out to inner city teenagers and has them write their own work and perform their own work. And um, I said to her, are you expecting these uh, students to then follow this path and become writers? And she said, you know, that's not really the goal of our project. The goal of our project is to empower these kids to know that they have a voice, to know that they can share a story. If you're doing a poetry course in a traditional high school, you might ask them to write the poem, right? And you get it back, and the teacher has to, to a certain extent, correct all the grammar, correct all the spelling, and sort of misses the point of what the kid is trying to share. So this kid gets back this page that's got red all over it, saying all the things he did wrong, and it sends a message that, that is not encouraging. When you take that away and you just say, 
tell your story in your own words, and you get to be in front of an audience and share it exactly as you want to say it. Spelling doesn't matter. Grammar doesn't matter, because again, you're talking about regionalism. And she says the impact of urban word and urban word projects, such as Youth Speaks and Louder Than a Bomb in Chicago, is not so much that we're creating a generation of poets, but that we're creating a generation of kids who have come from disadvantaged neighborhoods who know they can stand in front of a room and tell strangers their story and what they think, what they believe in, and the things, the changes they want to have happen. And she's like, that's going to have a tremendous impact for entire communities. And to me, that is what draws me to performance poetry is, is people telling their own stories, sharing it to their community, and then sometimes sharing it to communities that otherwise would never have heard them. And I find that extraordinarily compelling. And it's such a live medium that it's hard sometimes, if, you, if you're not familiar with these communities, to have access to them. They tend not to publish in literary journals. The books um, frequently are handmade, although publishers like Right Bloody Publishing, Penmanship Books, and Cypher Books are reaching out to these communities to publish sort of their better known poets. But it's, it's an accessibility issue for the other side. So I, my, one of my big passions as a poet is to bridge those worlds, to both showcase great traditional poets into these communities so that they're familiar with the, some of our great poets, and then also showcase the work being done in these communities, which can be so eye-opening to sort of the traditional and academic poetry worlds. And so I'm thrilled to have the NEA be a little guardian angel to help me um, do that on a, a larger level than I ever thought I could be able to do. You talk about wanting to examine the way performance poetry shifts from region to region, mm-hmm. what's authentic and organic, I guess, Yes. in each particular region. And you've been in New York for a while. Yes. So describe what <laughs> the New York experience is like in performance poetry. Yeah, we're very churchy, as I like to say. There's a lot of mm-hmm and say words and you are very vocal to the performer on stage there's a huge diversity in terms of who is comfortable performing you know I'm in the poetry slam community and frequently venues do slams all year to form teams of poets who then compete at a national poetry slam Uh, and if anyone's interested more of this they can go to poetryslam.com but the first team I was on was an Asian American Chinese American kid from Oklahoma who was 21 Bosia a South African man in his 60s and another NYU poet named Amanda Nazario and and so to work together we created group work and multi-voice work and then you come down and you meet all of these little pods of poets that represent their communities is just amazing. And so there's a lot of feeling of representation for New York. You, you want to represent New York really well. The last team I was on was actually this past year, 2010. And the team that I was on was an African-American guy in his mid-20s who's considered a blurred, as they call it, a black nerd. And so he had very nerdy poetry. I had um, an NYU professor, Brian Dillon, uh, who sometimes goes by the stage name Omni. And I have a wonderful poet named Elliot D. Smith, who actually uh, is transgendered and transitioned on the stage, not literally on one stage, but when we first were introduced to Elliot, he was a woman. And f- and over the course of the last few years, came to the realization that he was transgendered, transitioned on stage, and wrote poetry about every step of that process. And to witness that firsthand was such a gift. And then to be able to take that poet and bring them to a national stage and say, share your story with a community that you don't know, was to watch a person be that brave was incredible. And 
perhaps this talks about the progressiveness of the Poetry Slam community, but Eliot was not the only transgendered poet who performed at that National Poetry Slam. So there's numerous transgendered poets who feel that, that, that they have a home in this community. And that, to me, makes me feel really proud and that they get to go to different cities every year and, and explain, hey, Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Minneapolis, next year is going to be in Boston. Here's who we are, and this is the story that we're going to show with a community that's behind them. So I'm really proud of, of New York, but I'm also proud of the national community. This is putting you on the spot. <laughs> Can you give us a poem? Yes. Yes, I'll try to do it from memory. Uh, so let's see. This poem was written, inspired by actually a Best American Poetry blog entry. There's been a recent rash of suicides in our community, in the writing community, the larger writing community. And this poet named, I think Jennifer Hecht, spoke about how the number one predictor of suicide is knowing someone who's committed suicide. So she was making this plea to the writing community saying we need to not commit suicide. I know you're feeling bad, but this is becoming like a trigger effect. So inspired by that, and we'll see if I can remember it, was this poem called Op-Ed for the Sad Sack Review regarding news of another rash of writer suicides. In a fit of gloom, I googled the word failure just to see if my name would come up in the results. Instead, Google let me know that I had misspelled the word failure, that I had failed to spell it correctly. Recounting this story makes me feel like I'm beginning a very weepy poem or a very boring suicide note. You should never begin your wedding toast with the dictionary definition of marriage, and you should never begin your suicide note by saying you Googled failure. If I'm being honest here, the number one thing preventing me from killing myself these days is likely the idea of people finding out about it via Facebook status update. There is no dignity in that eulogy consisting mostly of sad-faced emoticons studded with apostrophe tears. Admittedly, this is a dumb reason to keep living. But it is a reason. And I'm sure you other sad sacks have your reasons too. So let's all cling to them. Let's agree that it is better to live for a stupid reason than to kill yourself for one. Let's feed our tears to the dragons of misery, but let's never crawl in their mouths. Let's write terrible poetry, dress like late-era Rothko's. Let's wear out the relentless hate machines of our brains but let's never break. Let's just keep living. We can do this. Trust me. Yours sincerely, me. A poet who doesn't even know how to spell the word failure. Oh, bravo. <laughs> I want to go through how you put it together. <laughs> Because it's performance poetry, yes. do you find that it actually evolves on the stage as you're performing? I mean, clearly you go with something written or something that you've wrestled with, but I would imagine, and I could be wrong, <laughs> that there's a certain amount of spontaneity that 
comes into a piece as well. Is that true? Absolutely. Um, I know that performance poets in general tend to have different ways of, pro of approaching it. Sometimes performance poets have a gesture that they want to do on stage or they realize they can do something cool within the context of a room and, and they use that in the creation of their piece. I'm sort of from a more traditional background. I have five books of poetry out. I like publishing literary journals. So in the last few years, because I run a performance venue, um, NYC Urbana at the Bowery Poetry Club, and I'm on stage, I have an opportunity to be on stage every week, I've tried to do this challenge to myself, which actually proved very helpful, which is every poem I had to perform on stage had to be a new piece, so constant debuts, and then I would either have to have submitted it to a literary journal already or submitted it within a week. And the reason I have submitted it within a week is because you can learn so much by performing in front of a live audience. Um, frequently, if you're comfortable on stage and you realize something isn't hitting right, you can couch it in some different language or soften blows or sharpen blows. And when you perform it in front of an audience and you let that organic experience happen, you can go back very quickly and write the notes of what changed change the poem in that way and submit that. But more frequently I've discovered that I've written a poem that and submitted it to a literary journal and felt like, oh, that's the, that is beautiful and obscure and I'm leaving it sort of open-ended. And then when I'm about to perform it and I'm rereading it, I realized that I had actually copped out, that I had totally chickened out of writing a real ending, that I had missed the core of what that poem was trying to say because I was allowing it to be this beautiful transparent thing when it wanted to be much more brutal uh, and I uh, there's many stanzas final stanzas of poems that were written at the venue that I perform at minutes before I got on stage and when when I perform it and I hit that final stanza you could feel it all click into place so much better and that's that's the final version of the poem that ends up going to print you know I usually get rejections for the thing and then I submit it with the new stanza that I would never have written if I didn't know I was performing it in front of an audience and then th then it gets picked up so both tools for me I think are really important both submitting it to literary journals and having that critical eye of knowing that someone's going to be reading it on a page without my voice helping them along and then also knowing that I'm going to be held accountable for my work so if I read a poem and I look down the audience goes what was that you know you know that so much better when it's a room full of New Yorkers believe me so the balance between the two I think has really helped forge my writing in, in a way that I'm really grateful to have both of those communities okay but in the final analysis <laughs> are you writing for the ear or are you writing for the page I am writing for the page. I will say that. I am aware of the stage and I like performing, but there are people who love being on stage. They love it. They just are tearing like terriers to try to get on that microphone. And I am not that. I'm someone who I know can do it. And I know that traditionally women are much more shy about being aggressive in the arts. You know, I see more women who in their bios write that they dabble in poetry. You never hear a man say that, right? And so I know that it's important for me, if I have the skill set to do it, to do it and to make that space more comfortable and accessible for other women who might want to do it but feel reticent. So my performance is, is something I love being a part of the community, but I don't have that performance hunger. You know, I'm a book reader and I love books, so I definitely feel like if my legacy is going to be viewed from the future, I'd want it to be my books and not necessarily YouTube videos. <laughs> you know, we don't normally think of slam poetry and the NEA in the same breath. And the NEA has only funded a handful of slam poets. 
Tell me your thinking about applying for the NEA fellowship. As per applying, I did not think that I was had a chance at all, but our community tends to not feel like other people will understand us. And I'm always telling people, uh, poets from my community, you know, go out there, apply, submit, take a chance. It's not your job to reject you. It's your job to put yourself out there. So as the deadline loomed, I felt like I would be a huge hypocrite if I, if I didn't at least try. And uh, I remember one of my favorite poets, Denise Newhamel, applied 13 times before she won her NEA. So in my head, I thought, OK, I'm going to apply for my one and get started on my 13. And it's like a little punch card. And maybe by the time I get 13, I'll feel a little stronger about my chances. So actually winning was, I don't think I will ever be as surprised uh, in my life. And I was one of the people who, when they received the phone call, avoided it, thinking it might be a creditor or aggressive telemarketer because they weren't leaving messages and they kept calling. So when I picked up the phone, I was actually on the street expecting to be like, all right, who is this? And it was the NEA. So hugely surprising. (laughs) And what has the fellowship enabled you to do? This year is the first year I've ever left traditional office life. Um, I paid my way through college with office jobs, and uh, I was eight years at the office job that I was um, left prior to this writing residency. And my vision for my residency year was, you know, take the year and then go right back into the office because I'm from a working class background. Making a living purely through the arts is not something that anyone does. So having this launch pad of this year residency and now getting this fellowship is allowing me to really explore options that I didn't think were possible for me, touring more extensively, being able to do art colonies, and and being able to continue the residency year past my residency year and to really focus on my writing and the work that I want to do. The two main things I want to do are finish the project I'm working on right now, which is um, a nonfiction book about Thomas Dent Mütter, the founder of the Mütter Museum, which in Philadelphia people know is a cult destination. It's a museum of mid-19th century medical oddities. So you can imagine the surprise on the faces of my office mates back at my old job when they said, you're leaving us to go where? Where now? (laughs) So I want to finish that for the first year. And thankfully, the NEA allows you to split it over two years. And the second year, I want to tour around and record regionalism in poetry, um, performance poetry, there is an energy and a rhythm that happens in certain cities. So a performance spot in Boston is going to have a vastly different feel and experience than one in Austin, Texas, which is going to be different than one from Fargo, which is different from one in San Francisco. And I think in performance poetry and slam poetry, there's a bid for legitimacy. We, we want to be considered as relevant as traditional print poetry. I mean, in doing that, we are less likely when a dialogue about discrepancies. You know, we want to have our, our best-known poets represent us. And I think it's time for us to also explore regionalism and our lesser-known voices and what, what feeds us as performers in this community is being able to explore another city through their poetry. And I want to be able to share that with a larger audience. So year two, that is uh, hopefully what I'll be able to do is hit the road with a recorder and go around and showcase um, and produce content that showcases all these wonderful regional voices um, that don't normally get aired to the larger public. Finally, what goes into creating a life that supports writing? I think that you need to erase judgment about Mm. what you should be doing or need to be doing or how people need to be reacting to your work or a claim that you should be getting, Um, especially with women. I have a real soft spot for women because I feel like they can feel like they've gotten too far away. I've met many women who 
leave, uh, let's say, an MFA program and they start working in a certain industry and then they have a few children and then they feel like they've gotten too far away from writing to ever come back. And writing is always there for you. You need to embolden yourself to keep writing. And there's many examples, surprisingly with women, of people who created and didn't think that anyone would ever notice them. You know, you have Emily Dickinson, obviously, who had this chest of poetry. You have uh, Frida Kahlo, who worked in her husband's shadow and never thought that she would be seen as an equal. And now I feel like more people are familiar with Frida's work than Diego Rivera's work. And, and most recently, photography. You have a photographer named Vivian Meyer. I'm not sure if you've heard of her, but... Someone bought a box of her photographs in uh, an auction, and now she's become this phenomenon in the photography world of being a street photographer that no one ever knew of. So you need to constantly create and describe the world that you're living in, describe what you're doing, be a advocate for your community, and put yourself out there. Take the chances, but don't ever stop creating or feel like creating is not something that you have access to and then uh, just get bolder and bolder and bolder. But always create, always, always create. That was Poet and the recipient of a 2011 NEA Poetry Fellowship, Kristen O'Keefe Aptowitz. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from City Life Remix by DJ Spooky from his album, The Secret Song, used courtesy of Music and Art Management, Inc., The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, jazz critic Gary Giddens talks about the musical genius of Duke Ellington. To find out how artworks in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.